Well, hey guys, today we're with Marty Solomon. Most of you guys from our church, from Dream Church, and uh, anybody that may be listening to this know him from the Bama podcast that uh, everybody's kind of gone through. But um, but you do a lot of other stuff as well. So I'd love for you to just give a quick intro about who you are and, and what you're doing and what the Lord has done through you before we before we get into it. Yeah, uh, my job. Um, I don't know why we always start there. What a weird place to start. Uh, let me start somewhere else. Um, I I'm married to my wife Rebecca. Uh, let's see here. This would be. Oh golly, I'm we're getting to be married long enough. I'm starting to lose count. We're coming up on 18 years <laughs> wow. together. Um, this January will be 18 if I'm doing my math correctly. Uh, we got two kids. My daughter is 12 and a half. My son is 11. We uh, we lived in Idaho our whole life. Um, my wife kind of grew up in uh, Montana, most of hers, but I was in Idaho my whole life. Just recently moved to Cincinnati, Ohio in, let's see, last June, so a year, year and a half ago, and uh, getting resettled. Everything's going well there. My actual job um, is to lead Impact Campus Ministries, so we are a, a campus ministry planting uh, organization where we try to find places where in our tradition we don't have campus ministries and plant new ministries there. We're very prayer-centric. Um, I always kind of like to talk about our counterintuitive. We call it our special sauce. It is our definition of success, which is a little upside down. Um, our organization's always been very committed since the mid-90s to measuring success by intimacy with God. So Love it. Uh, we won't talk a whole lot about quantitative things. We might. We're getting better at talking about those things, but we want to measure our success in the things that matter by some qualitative metrics, which is always tricky. Uh, yeah, and then we got the podcast. Um, I'm headed off next week to a writing retreat. I'm under contract for a book, so yeah. that's coming. Awesome. Got a YouTube channel. We're trying to just create. I, I'm a creator, so yeah. I love to create content. That Anything I can do to help inspire people, to have a better reading of the Bible, to see God more clearly, um, that's my jam. So that is what I love to do on any any chance I get. Yeah, that's amazing. I, something you mentioned when you were talking about um, your organization, uh, how, you, how you base it on quality, not quantity. I, I think that's really a lot of, uh, I guess that's what a lot of questions that I'd love to throw at you today kind of center around, is that I feel like we, we've gotten so bogged down in quantity that we've missed the quality and I think the irony is, is a lot of people are, you know, quote unquote, I don't think people are leaving the church. I think people are searching out for the quality that the church is, is really designed to offer up. And so uh, I, I, that's really cool that you guys do that. There's, there's very few organizations that, especially Christian organizations, which is kind of, you know, backwards, but they really view things like that. So I, I think that's really awesome, but um, amazing. Well, I, I'd love for you to start out. You guys do this on the podcast. And just to be clear, I'm going to link the podcast in this episode um, but a lot of these questions, you guys go way deeper in different episodes throughout the podcast. Um, but just to give kind of a surface level, I'd love for you. To, I'd love to start out with you kind of explaining, and I know you could take a whole chunk of time on this, but but in a quick way, the difference between an Eastern perspective and a Western perspective. Um, how, how would you, in in a real summarized way, explain the difference between those two? So Western thought, particularly as we're familiar with it, is going to be driven, uh, it's very Greek. It's going to be driven more by abstract, more by philosophy, more. It's just the way the Greek mind works. And we work pretty hard in the podcast to make sure people understand it's not right and wrong. It's not good or bad. We're 
we're different than the world of the Bible. And, and we often assume the Bible is, it, it kind of transcends those boundaries and, and, and we can just read it through our lens in our world. And, and I wouldn't doubt the Spirit's ability to do that, but yet as students, we want to be more aware when we interpret the scriptures of how Eastern this, and that, that world's just different. So instead of abstract, it's concrete. Um, instead of philosophical, it's, I, I don't know, I don't even know what the an- antithesis of that might be. It's, it's, it's narrative, it's story, it's experience, it's picture. So picture, I've been ridiculed for how I say the word picture. <laughs> Somebody brought out a picture one day and said, if I were to take a photograph of this, would it be a picture of a picture? And I'm like, stop it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, they, they see everything in terms of symbols and images and it, and relationship and experience, it's dynamic. Like one of my favorite differences to point out is dynamic versus static, mm. which is part, it's going to kind of get close to what you were talking about with quantity and quality. We love quantity. We love static. We love, because if it's static, I can manipulate it. I can control it. Right. I, I don't mean manipulate it in a bad way. I just mean I can make it effective and efficient. And that is the Greco-Roman way. And then I can produce more of it and I can be in control of that production. And the Eastern world is it sees it sees the dynamic nature of creation. This is this is something that's outside of I can't control this. This is something yeah. outside of me. And so I'm in this mysterious relationship with this mysterious creator. And we have all these stories of what we've learned through and even the way we read the Bible, we try to <laughs> like we try to manipulate it, control oh, yeah. it, make it static. So that's those are some of the key differences. I, I love the static dynamic. I'm just always reminding myself and my students and people I talk to, ah, it's not that static. It's not that static. It's dynamic. Because when I, uh, it opens me up. Yeah. Like if it's dynamic, it now opens me up to the fact like what else is going on here? There's more, uh, whatever. And and so that word dynamic for me does something to my insights that I find really helpful. Yeah. It's alive and active. It's, it's, it's like you could read the same passage 45 times and get 45, not different things, deeper things. And uh, yep. that's that's just what I, I love about scripture. So going along with that, the the thought in the South, and I can only speak to the South. Which, by the way, I lived in Kentucky for like ten years of my life, London, Kentucky, which is only a couple hours from where you are. Um, yeah. But I still consider that South because the line of thinking is very similar. But in the South, we have this this way of thinking that in the Old Testament there was an, um, and I'm being a little exaggerative, exaggerative, but you know, uh, the Old Testament was a angry vengeful, uh, wrathful, which I don't like the way that people use that word anyway here, uh, God. But then we get to the New Testament, and God's completely changed. Now he's loving, and he's gracious, and he's kind. And so we vacillate back and forth between you have a really, really angry God in one sense, but then in another sense, you've got a really, really loving God. And um, and so how, how would you explain that, um, because obviously that's not the complete narrative, if at all the narrative. Um, but how, how would you explain the congruence between Old Testament and New Testament and how it actually is one solid story? I just listened to the latest episode of the podcast and you guys talked a little bit about this. But um, how would you explain that congruence between the old and new? Yeah, what we should have is we should have a completely seamless narrative. Uh, and for those of us that are Jesus followers, like Jesus should be the climactic. We talk about fulfillment, but we usually misunderstand that word. Again, Western versus Eastern. But 
Jesus is the story perfectly lived out. If you were to take the whole narrative, if you were to take all of Tanakh, all of Torah and the Old Testament and put it in a person, what you end up getting is Jesus. So you should have this seamless flow of, and, and a lot of those other, you know, what I always call bad readings of the Bible, they just come with, you know, they come from a thousand years of manipulating theology, a lot of really anti-Semitic history, just a, a ton of stuff going on there that we have we have um, propped up to help us kind of see the Bible through this lens of supersessionism, of we're better, the Jesus community has it, we know God, God loves us, and those other people, boy, they're dumb, boy, they missed it. And yet when you go back and you listen to how those that Jewish community reads their Bible, I, I mean, I listen to these Orthodox rabbis who don't follow Jesus, and we, we could have that conversation and pull those those pieces apart, but nevertheless, and all I and all I hear them talking about when they talk about their scriptures is Jesus, like it's brilliant. Like all they're like they talk about all this stuff, and I'm just like, well, that's just Jesus. And I was just listening to a video. I'm preparing for Sukkot, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. My family will observe that coming up here next week, and so I'm I'm listening to some rabbinic teaching, trying to get my mind and my heart ready, and they're talking about the rabbinic teaching of. Of God, when they came out of the Passover, they stopped and they stayed in a place called Sukkot. And it's in this place where they were forced, the people of Israel were forced on the run to live in these Sukkot, these sukkahs, these little shelters which are, which are designed for cattle. So they had to sleep with the sheep and the, and the cows and the livestock. And, they, and because they took this step of faith, God came and sukkahed with them. And the whole time I'm sitting here just hearing the Gospel of John. Amazing. And the word became flesh, and if it were in Hebrew, it would say uh, either mishkan, dwelt, uh, sukkad, tabernacled amongst us. I mean, all I'm I'm hearing is a story of Christmas and Jesus. Like, and that's just one example of what happens. Like, of course, and, and that should not surprise us. Of course, it's the same God. Of course, it's the same narrative. Of course, every time you would hear it, I hear Jesus, not because the scriptures are foreshadowing, not because they're trying to point forward necessarily, but because this has always been the story. It's always been who's God, who God is. It's always been the experience of God and his people. So, of course, it would be the exact same as what we would see in Jesus. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Speaking of Jesus, which, by the way, that is awesome. I never thought about that. I've kind of known about what's coming up and stuff, but never thought of it in that way. So that's that's a huge nugget in itself. Um, but speaking of Jesus, and again, I'm just trying to, what I really am trying to get at the heart of is for us to understand that that Jesus was not, and we're going to, I'm going to ask you this question in a minute, but Jesus wasn't come to, he didn't come to fix God. He didn't come to, to change God. Um, he came to be us, to change something in us, but God never changed. And, um, and so if I ask you the question, what did Jesus come to do and who, for whom did he come to do that for? Um, what's some of the first things that kind of pop in your mind? Uh, oh, golly. Um, and again, I, my brain immediately starts with very, very, it's so early in the Old Testament when we encounter that story. Like you asked me about Jesus and my brain immediately goes to Cain and Abel and God coming to Cain and like, Cain, why are you? Why are you upset? Like, I, I know you made a sacrifice that you, for whatever reason, we're not told, that you probably regret, but that's fine. 
Like if you do what's right, if the if the next thing you do is right, you'll be accepted. Like it hasn't there's no balance that like no no bank account that has been hurt. It, Abel's not a threat to you. I have I don't love you. And my point in all that is God's position with Cain hasn't changed. Um and yet Cain's position with God has changed. Cain's position with himself has changed. And God's letting Cain know this is really, really dangerous because if you live in that place and if you act out of that sense of false identity where you feel like you're less than, you're going to do something really stupid. But you need to know that my position hasn't changed. And Like this goes again, this isn't something new with Jesus. This goes all the way back to the very beginning of the story. And uh, and yeah, I did. I, I heard that, as you were saying that, I heard that great Richard Rohr quote about... Uh, God didn't come, or Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us, which is very typical penal substitutionary atonement. But, but Jesus came to change our mind about God. Like Jesus came to say, over the course of a couple thousand years, we have interpreted this story and this book, and we've we've filtered it through a lot of different thoughts and perspectives. Some of them great, some of them amazing and beautiful, some of them like really destructive some of them like kind of slightly off course, but we've filtered it through all this stuff. And Jesus comes to say, this is, so another great quote from Brian Zond, one of my favorite quotes, um, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known this, but now we do. And I love that quote. I love that quote. So that's what Jesus, Jesus came to show us what God, what God was like, like Torah. Because without Jesus, I mean, that's what the New Testament says. Like now that the Christ, now in Christ we see clearly. Um, and not, not we see clearly as like we've been given perfect eyesight, but we, we've been given the opportunity to see uh, the proper interpretation of God's story and God's reality incarnated. So we no longer have to, was it that rabbi who got it right? Was it that rabbi who got it right? What about this take? What about that tradition? And what about this midrash? And Jesus, Jesus was the one that came and said, I will walk it out. I will interpret it. I will live it out perfectly in front of you. And so when you see that, hopefully, I would imagine what happens is Jesus ends up changing our minds about God. That's what God is like. God hangs, God touches lepers. God God dines with sinners. That's what God, yeah, yeah, apparently. Apparently that's who God is and what God does and what he's like. So, beautiful. I mean, yeah, Philip, Philip, how long have I been with you? You still don't understand. If you've seen me, you've seen him. You know what I mean? Uh Yep, yep. Awesome. Well, I read this morning, and I've been going through Luke. I've spent a ton of time in Luke and um, lately, and as I've been reading through Luke, and you see this everywhere else as well, but I specifically can speak to Luke. Um, you see this language of saved, which most people I think know is, is typically the Greek word sozo. But um, we, we have this mindset typically ingrained in us through tradition or whatever that we've been saved from something, particularly saved from hell. And um, and that's the whole, you know, you repeat this prayer, you don't go to hell. And, um, and that's just our mindset. So when we see the word saved in scriptures, particularly in the New Testament— um, we are immediately we think amazing if I believe I don't go to hell, and um, but you read this and you start to see Jesus is talking about something so much more deep and and not something that's to come. It, he's speaking to something that is is active and current when he's talking about sozo, and so um, when when you know you kind of approach this uh, question from students or whatever of, of what does it mean for Jesus to save us or that we've been saved, uh, what what would you describe that as? 
Yeah, and there will be so part of and part of the dance we do between our Greek New Testaments and then our Hebrew Old Testaments, which I mean the Septuagint adds a whole other layer to our ability to have that conversation. But part of the dance we're always doing is you take these Hebraic concepts, which I love to tell my students there's eight thousand words in the biblical Hebrew language versus four hundred thousand in modern English. So what that means is that you are you are packing a lot of meaning into one word, one one biblical word, Hebraic word and concept. And so, like the, the word salvation carries so many, and it's used in so many different ways um, throughout Scripture. In some senses, we don't want to get away from the fact that we are saved from something, and yet we're rescued. It's more in terms of deliverance. Um, and this is what's so wacky for us in our culture, because our culture that we've been, most of us, I'm assuming most of your listeners have been born into a, and enjoy is probably going to be a Western American context. We have always been the, like, how hard is it to read the Bible when you are the dominant superpower in the world? Because the Bible is not written by the dominant, like no part of the Bible is written by the dominant superpower of the world. It is written to critique the dominant superpower. Like it keeps talking about rescuing God's people from the dominant superpowers of the world. And yet we have married those concepts and then we try to read our Bibles and we wonder why we get such bad readings of the Bible because we don't catch things like deliverance. Like, cause, cause we don't know anything about deliverance. We're conquest. That's who we are. Like we, we've always been the ones who win. We're the winners. Um, even when we lose, we're still the winners. And we, so it's so difficult for us to truly understand biblical salvation because we don't understand deliverance in that sense. Um, but then there's like one of my favorite pictures that I'll tell students about when they ask this question. Um, Jesus will say at one point, I've come to seek and save. I believe that's coming out of Luke as well, if I have my Bible memory correctly. I've come to seek and save the lost, which is a direct play on Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where Jesus is, uh, Jesus is referencing the prophets, are referencing shepherds, and these shepherds that have lost sheep, and so they have to go search for them, and the two Hebrew concepts are seek and save. They have to search for them and rescue them. So in this sense, the saving, the rescue, is a sense of bringing them back bringing them back home, bringing them back to the place where they belong. So salvation is belonging. Salvation is identity. Salvation is, and again, we have another biblical word, redemption, which we, as Westerners, talk about redemption as the buying back of something. We make it a financial transaction because that's what Americans do. But this biblical concept is a concept of family, to redeem something is to take somebody who was lost, somebody on the outside, somebody who didn't have a dinner table to sit at, and to redeem them is to bring them into your family, to sit them down at your table, to say, you're now a part of this group. That That's salvation. So this picture of God being this grand uh, patriarch, and I don't mean that in a stupid way. I mean that like God has this beautiful beta of this household with all these kids in it, and God keeps adopting more and more kids into this family saving them, bringing them in, uh, allowing them to have a place of belonging. That That's one of my favorite pictures for salvation. Yeah, I love it. Even Luke, Luke is the only one that mentions the um, in-depth, this story in Luke 15 of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the and the prodigal. We I, I hate calling him the prodigal son because he's never called prodigal in the whole story. Right. But uh, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was never prodigal to the dad. But the uh, the lost son, the redeemed heir. And um, 
And the thing that strikes me that we've, we've actually been talking about a lot lately is that every single one of those that found themselves misplaced started at home. And, yep. the, and the ownership of them never changed. Yep. And, um, and yep. they, they just got misplaced. And so it's like, man, you read this story, and it's, it, it really makes you look, and especially in our culture right now with so much tension and so much diver- – uh, not diversity, uh, division. And yep. so uh, just, just, just all this, this, this hate and anger. And you look at this story, and it's like, man, a lot of these people that we've pushed out of the church are actually brothers and sisters that have gotten misplaced, but the Lord's going to seek until he finds and um, and so yeah, so it just re- it really kind of redefines how you not just love those who love you, but love your enemies to love everybody as Christ has loved us, et cetera. So I, I just love that. I love that picture. What, what's the and there's a ton. So I know this is a very loaded question, as is as are all of these. So I apologize for that. But um, you get this feeling when you read the Book of Acts and the the writings of Paul and others that their church is very different than our modern, postmodern church. But but what were, if you were comparing, contrasting, um, in a very summarized way, some really overarching differences between the early church, what we would call it, and then kind of our typical big C, people say modern church today, particularly in the West? That's a good question. Um so, man, there's a lot of man again, just a lot of components and facets. Yeah, sorry about all that. <laughs> no, it's 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 super good. They're they're great questions. On on one level, this early church is a part of. They're immersed in something. They're immersed in an established faith expression, and we're becoming more and more aware of this with more and more scholarship that's happening within the last half a century or so. But this early Christian church was something that existed within completely immersed within, with some exceptions, there were some exceptions, but generally speaking, it was completely immersed within the Jewish experience. So it it existed within as kind of like, it would have been like a group of people, a sect, a faction of the local synagogue. So they did have on some level, um, and synagogue is different than church, um, but they did have a, a religious there would have been a world of religious faith expression that had physical buildings. And uh, sometimes I think we overcorrect and we give this impression. It's this purely organic group of people that's just like wandering around selling all their stuff. Well, well, this they were doing that. And yet, in large part, they were existing within. But then as these things started to diverge, and those reasons are up for debate why that schism started to happen... These movements, synagogues were the same way. So two, 200 years before Jesus, the same thing happened with synagogue. You, you have this group of people that is committed not to an event and not to an institution, but they are a dynamic community of people doing life together and trying to show the world a different way of ordering themselves. We would use words today, I don't think they're inappropriate, they're kind of buzzwordy, but I don't think they're bad, missional. This was a missional group of people, a group of people that believed that they had been commissioned as ambassadors to show the world what heaven looks like, to give people a taste of the the economy of God. So they were share, they were they were sharing all things. They were disrupting the social order of all the ways that you know, slave and free, uh, Jew and Greek, male and female. They were disrupting all these things and pulling these things together. 
and saying there's one new humanity because of what we've learned in Jesus. Um, that would be the equivalent of today, like saying there's no Democrat or Republican, no, you know, whatever, like no, no black, brown or white, but there's a new humanity because in Christ we've seen something and we're going to show the world what that something looks like. And so, uh, yeah, today where our center of gravity often is connected to an institution or uh, invo- like an event, whether it's Sunday morning or the involvement with that event and institution and nonprofit organization uh, versus relationships. Um, and I don't even know, you know, I, 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 I'll, I'll say that and I'll also say our call isn't necessarily to go all the way back. We live in the 21st century, not the first century. We are modern, postmodern Americans. We are not first century Jews and Gentiles. So we need to, we need to show the world a new way of ordering ourselves in our own context and yet there's probably some things we could learn from that. There's probably, I feel like if we had a group of people that committed to relationship and showing this world, this postmodern American world, the economy of God, I believe it would blow people's minds. Yeah. I think, I, I think we miss that a lot. Yeah. I, I just finished reading, um, no matter what people think about the message translation, I just finished reading the uh, autobiography of Eugene Peterson. I think it's called A Burning <laughs> in My Bones. Um, have you read <laughs> that? I have not, but Eugene oh, Peterson Lord. is was... A gift to yes. this world, this yeah. this era we lived in. Yeah, I, I love reading, but this is one of those books I mourned when it was over. It was just like, man, is there going to be, a, can there be a part two, you know, whatever. But the thing that struck me with him was, A, his, um, he hated the spotlight, which I feel like is very different, and I can speak from experience. Like, I, I personally, I used to uh, say I hated the spotlight and internally love the spotlight. You know, it was like, stop clapping, but come on, keep clapping, you know, type thing. But um, but that was number one. But number two, you know, his thinking of he was Eugene Peterson. He could have had a, you know, forty thousand person church and the whole thing. And um, over and over, he's quoted in in this autobiography of saying, um, he he initially says, "There's no way a pastor can pastor of church more than five hundred people." And then later on in his life, he edits that, and it's more like, and I forget the exact number, but it's more like fifty or sixty. And um. Yeah. And so yeah. you have Eugene Peterson sells 23 million, I think, books over the course of his lifetime, who is a Sunday school teacher at a Lutheran church with about 30 people. And, um, and that's just what they do in Montana, the backwoods, the rest of it. And you'll, you'll end the book wanting to live in Montana and wanting to live in the woods and wanting to kind of sell everything and live off the land. But, um, but the point is, is that you read this and, man, you just it strikes you that he, A, is free from this weight of performing um, but B, it's just like, man, this feels right. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and that's kind of what it, it, it sounds like coming from you thinking back towards the old church. And like you said, there's a lot of things that, yeah, we should be different. We should be on a higher level of glory to glory, if you will, um, than they were. However, it's just that the missing piece of like, I must decrease so he can increase, um, that you feel reading the book of Acts that today is kind of flipped on its head. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm absolutely with you. I think relationships would be a cure for a lot of that. Letting go. I know you've posted the uh, the Mark Driscoll, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill um, podcast, and it's been amazing to listen to. And the sad part is, it's very relatable because I'm like, man, I've kind of I've kind of been in a lot of those situations for years. And yeah. um, but being just that that dichotomy, if you will, just like the the difference between an orthodox church about family and relationships and then a church that's like trying to make a cultural difference with you know a superstar pastor it's, it's just you can't carry that weight it's too heavy of a weight 
And um, so I, I love that idea of relationship. Um, a couple more questions. Um, I, talking about, I guess, that that idea of, of relationships, church, what, what would you feel like the role of a pastor should be? Um, because I think a lot of times pastors get so caught up in doing and doing and doing and running and running and running. Um, so I'd just love to hear your thoughts on what a, a healthy biblical pastor would look like. Yeah. Um, so the pastor, so I'll give you three words and I'm going to try to externally process this as we go. I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to articulate this, but there are three words that come to mind. Manager, leader, pastor, right? So for a long time, I've been talking about, particularly in the church world, um, what I find so frustrating is we're really good at, like, there's a difference between a manager and a leader. A manager can make things go. It can get the, they can even be charismatic, like have this charismatic personality and be really electric and like get things done and all that kind of stuff. But that all they're doing is just managing. They're taking the pieces, they're moving it, efficiency, you know, efficacy, like making sure things work and produce. And you can do that. And managers, especially if they have a personality, can just really, we, we really put them in places and we honor them and not all, not all bad. Um, but there's a difference between management and leadership. And leadership has this awareness of how to call out of people. It's far more than just moving the pieces around. It's seeing the things underneath the things, the things in between the lines. It's reading what's going on in a person and calling out of them their full potential and putting them in places where they thrive. And they. it's not just about meeting the objectives and getting the mission accomplished. It's also about the development of the very people involved in the task in the first place. And, and then pastor, so I read a blog the other day, which really challenged me because I've been talking about leaders and managers and they say the church needs to stop talking about leadership. They need to talk about pastoring. And I was like, ah, oh, I mean, that's a great, that's another great point because if we get all wrapped up in leadership and forget the call to pastor, because that's a whole nother thing. And that's also, it's like, so it's taking the same leadership awareness and whatever that is, is starting to tap into wisdom. Pastoring is maximizing, maximizing wisdom. It's about helping people navigate to their full spiritual selves. And that's what Eugene Peterson was so passionate about when he wrote about things is I think one of his favorite quotes, let's see if I can remember it. He said, um, uh, 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 there's no such thing as perfect churches. There is only groups of sinners gathered all around the world. Yes. One of these sinners we designate pastors. Yeah, Their job <laughs> is to keep us spiritually attentive. And it's this job that's being abandoned in spades. And he wrote that decades ago. Um, and that, I mean, that speaks to pastoring is helping people because you could still lead people, and it might be spirit, it might be spiritual, it might not be spiritual. But I think what I mean by that is people might not even be attentive to the person of God and the person of Christ. And the pastor is somebody who makes them attentive to that thing, which could be running totally counter, counterintuitive to the mission and the objective. But the pastor is the one that helps people discern that. And he's not the one that, the pastor is just the one that, that, that gets people, like teaches people how to, what I'm thinking is the rabbinical quote. There's a Jewish teaching that says, uh, a rabbi is a geologist of the soul. Mm. Uh, you know, he wow, can, I love that. He can teach you, that in this world, you'll find all kinds of stuff. If you know where to dig, you can find gold and treasures and diamonds. If you don't know where to dig, all you'll find is rocks and dirt. The rabbi is a geologist of the soul. He can show you where to dig and what to dig for, but the digging you must do yourself is one of the things that... Uh, that and that's a Jewish take on Rebbe, 
it's the same kind of Christian take on pastor. The pastor has this spiritual, which means how grounded, how emotionally healthy, how, how much does that person have to abide in the vine to let God flow through him or her to lift up people? It's, that's, that's the call of, of being a pastor, I feel like. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I love that. I've been I've been telling people lately that my primary job is to be the most wild and free person in the room every Sunday and every time we're together. And um, yeah. whether that's right or wrong, it's uh, I just I feel like that's what the Lord is really, especially after reading everything from Eugene Peterson, just really wanting pastors today to be um, be sons first and daughters first. We need more people that have, and this is going to convict me as soon as this comes out of my mouth, <laughs> we need more people that are rooted and grounded spiritual monks in who mm. God is and what he's doing, and we need less people that have platforms and brands, and uh, that's what I'm finding so convicting listening to that podcast, because um, yeah, you're right. It's like, oh yeah, oops, that's me. Well, I showed up in episode two. Oh, I showed up in episode three. Oh, darn it. Um <laughs> This is really alive in me. And and luckily, a lot of the other stuff is alive in me, too, because I've had amazing mentors that have used Eugene Peterson and taught me about pastoring. So I'm thankful for that. But th- there's a war that goes on inside of us in this world, no doubt about it. Yeah, I got I got one more question for you, and I'll, I'll set it up with this. Um, is that, obviously, the past year and a half has been... I'm thir- I'm going to be 30 next month. So the the craziest year and a half of my life, almost two years, which is weird to think about. But um, I don't know what's happening where you guys are, but around here, um, people have, for lack of a better term, have left the big C overall church in droves during this. And it's not, hey, we're going to go watch online and we'll be back when COVID's over. It's like, hey, we stayed home during COVID to watch online and we realized, wait a minute, our lives are no different. Why go back? And uh, man, I've heard, if I had a dime for every time I heard that story from people, um, outside of our church, just just knowing people in the community, um, I, I could buy a house probably. But um, <laughs> anyway, but so, so I've been trying to process this, and I think a lot of it has to do with what we just talked about, um, that people are leaving the big brands and realizing they never necessarily, and this isn't a shot, I'll probably edit this out, but never had a church. Um, they just had kind of a show. and um, But at the same time, I'm, I'm asking myself, as far as you know, a leader of a church, pastor of a church, like where do where do we go from here? What it what is what is the Lord doing in this season to really just like reground us to use Revelation to take us back to our first love, to give us almost like a big reset? Like obviously the Lord did not send COVID on the land to judge us, but um um you know I mean but at the same time He uses everything meant for bad for good, and so you know it's it's just it, it feels like a big reset that the Lord is doing in us um. And uh, kind of taking it back to the to the roots. I've also talked to a lot of people that left some of these bigger churches and are now going back to either their churches they grew up in, smaller churches, um, and, you know, et cetera. And so, uh, what what are your thoughts? You know, on where do, where do we go from here as the church? Kind of how how do we go into the next season, the next seasons, and uh, and what do you kind of feel since the Lord is is doing right now? Well, it definitely feels like an opportunity, um, and it's feeling more and more like a missed one. It's not too late. I mean, there's always it's never too late for anything. Um, I was I was relatively optimistic towards the beginning of this thing. I thought, 
like those first two months or two of lockdown, I thought, man, we are finally, this is it, like global pandemic. Like what more of an opportunity are we going to have to reassess everything? I sat with pastor friends, some of my best friends. They were asking all the right questions. They were saying things like, I don't think we'll ever go back to our building again. Like this is an opportunity to do like we can use our building for something else, but we're going to do like, this is it. And I was like, oh, I was like kind of getting optimistic. And that didn't last but for mm-hmm. the moment we could start gathering yeah. again. Then Boy, we, we started trying to, <laughs> we, we started trying to just draw. And, and yeah, this pandemic has shown, um, there's so many uh, layers to all this, but I feel like I answer every one of your questions that way. Um, but it definitely has shown for so many of the masses that were just like showing up because it's just what you do. And it broke. Like I picture those cartoons where you've got the hypnotized eyes like spinning and then like something like it broke for them. And they realized, why am I doing this? What? And for so many of those, those folks that they're in that weird space. So to get back to your question, um, it feels like an opportunity to ask some of those questions we asked just, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes ago about the early church, about relationship I don't want to go back and recreate the first century because I don't live in that world, but I do want to be like, okay, so here's this opportunity to reground ourselves in things that actually do matter, that everybody really does want. Like we were drawing so much energy off of these things that we all kind of know and we know we we knew and we know don't matter, but it was where the energy hub was. So we would like pull it together so that we could spin it off into some of the things that do matter. Well, now we get a chance to just skip the middleman and jump. So discipleship, like real discipleship, like not church, small group. That's great. Like I love church, small groups. Like please do them. Don't know if you do them. Please do them. Um, but but I, I mean like, like the pastoring we were just talking about. And I don't, I'm not sure all this has to be done like by like paid church staff pastors, but find those people that are gifted in that way. Pay the ones that can be paid and pay church staff to pastor people because we need it now more than ever. Um, teach people how to build relationships that survive things like pandemic, that meet the needs of the world around them because our institutions have been able to do some really amazing, cool things, and I hope that they survive and are still able to do some of those amazing, cool things. But our institutions were also not able to do some of the things that came around the corner at us. But relationships could have, like real, true relationships could have, especially if they were Eucharistic relationships, especially if we were getting together in groups of people that weren't just like-minded conservatives or like-minded progressives or like-minded this or the same social class. And like, especially if we were like, if we had actually been, if we choose to seize this opportunity and create what I would call Eucharistic community, I think we would see a lot of these issues. We wouldn't we wouldn't hear them through the lens of our particular news channel hype source. We'd hear them through the lens of people and names and relationships and stories. Um I, anyway, I just think I think it's a huge opportunity to look at the landscape and go, "Wait a minute. We've all learned." Like honestly, take church out of it, Josh. I feel like we all know. The thing about your family. This pandemic made it super clear to me anyway, maybe this is different, but to me, it was like, oh, I know what matters with my family and my whole family knows. And, and football practice 
which was everything, right? I mean, extracurriculars, like blah, blah. And you know what? It just, we just don't, Cub Scouts mattered a whole lot less. And now that it's all like starting again, it's not just church. It's at, we had the opportunity to reassess like what freaking mattered. And we're, and, and, and we're, so we, we get to do that same thing with church. The same thing we're doing with our families, the same thing we're, our businesses are doing it. Businesses are going, why am I paying $10,000 a month for an office space? We apparently don't need it. Uh, we're doing it everywhere. And the church just gets the opportunity to do it. So it's not, it's not just church. It's not, but church is one of those cultural institutions that's going to get to reassess itself and going, wait a minute, what matters for us? It won't be the same thing that matters for the strip mall down the road, but it it will be it'll be something and we 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 need to grapple with what those things look like yeah i agree i agree so marty thank you so much for your time this has been super beneficial and like i said i'll i'll, I'll post the uh the bama podcast link in the uh show notes but if you guys haven't checked it out the few of you that haven't you absolutely need to this is like not even touching the surface of what you guys touch on the podcast so thank you so much for your time i, I really appreciate it Absolutely. It's been a pleasure to be here. So yeah, thanks for having me.